you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Good morning, church. My name is Bill Jackson. I'm married to Kim and have two daughters, Chloe and Amy, both who are studying at university. I also have two dogs, a King Charles Cavalier and a pug, who really do enjoy online church with me. During the week, I am the principal of Maranatha Christian School, and it certainly has been a strange couple of years in school. But thankfully, next week, we have our preps, ones and two students coming back to school. And we're very much looking, looking forward to that. The Bible reading I'm going to do today is from Luke chapter 8, and it's verses 40 to 48, if you'd like to follow with me. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was the ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touch me, for I perceive that the power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. And now she had, and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Hey, uh, wonderful to be with you today. My name's Andy Judd. I teach Old Testament at Ridley College in Parkville. And it's my great pleasure. I'm really grateful uh, for the invitation from Guy and Steph and the team to come and open the Bible with you today. Speaking of um, Ridley, the uh, name of the college that I work at, it's actually Ridley Week. Uh, I don't know if you knew that the Anglican Church has a a calendar of uh, impressive Christians, men and women from the past that we remember, but it's a great privilege to be preaching on Ridley Week. Uh, Nicholas Ridley, the person that Ridley College is named after, I don't know if you know the story, but it's it's wild. He was an English uh, reformer and he was an academic and he uh, was given a choice essentially, uh, obey the Queen or obey the word of God. And he chose option B. And for that choice, he was uh, tied up to a a bunch of wood and set on fire, burned at the stake. Uh, If you're burned at the stake, ideally you want to go quickly. He he didn't. In fact, people took pity on him and his brother-in-law came and added more fuel to the fire to try to speed it along. That was on the 16th of October, 1555. And so it's... uh, fitting way to remember him and remember his example of someone who stood up for the word of God in our church to open the word of God 
I'll encourage uh, us to do that today as we get in. Get your Bibles out. If you don't have one, uh, let us know. We'd love to give you one. And we're going to open the Word and read to meet Jesus because that's how we meet Jesus, isn't it? By opening the Word of God and listening to what it has to say. So uh, we are in the Gospel of Luke, Luke's Gospel, the biography of Jesus and his ministry. And uh, it was written by Luke. That's why it's called Luke's Gospel. Luke uh, wrote sort of in the, the late first century, probably after, um, shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection. Early church history records that Luke was a doctor. Um, and he wasn't an eyewitness, but he was a traveling companion of Paul. And so he is able to interview eyewitnesses and discover from the documentary record what happened so that we can know who Jesus was and what he did. And in Luke's gospel, if you've been tracking along with us in this series as we encounter Jesus, you'll know that we've had a whole bunch of people who've encountered Jesus, who've met Jesus and their life has been changed forever. Last week, it was a, a man who was afflicted by evil spirits. In other um, parts of the gospel, we've, we've met a woman with a, a reputation for immorality who comes to Jesus. Uh, there was a grieving widow grieving the loss of her only son. And this week, it's a, another woman a woman who grabs hold of Jesus in a crowd and whose life is never the same again. What I um, love about this story from Luke chapter 8 is that it's actually sandwiched in the middle of a different story, a story about a, a father and a daughter, a man, Jairus, who's an important person, a somebody, a leader of the synagogue who's uh, in, charge for the, in charge of the arrangements for worship, a key leader. Maybe you can think of people in your church who fit this bill, important, respected. And his daughter is ill. In fact, seriously ill. His daughter is dying. And so begs Jesus to come and to heal her. So off Jesus goes to heal Jairus's daughter. But on the way, someone else sees Jesus coming. An unnamed woman who sees Jesus coming. Someone who will not let this opportunity go past, who sees the opportunity to encounter Jesus and will not let the opportunity go past. Unlike Jairus, the important synagogue leader, here is someone who's not important, the opposite, someone who's on the outside of society. Nobody seems to notice her and no one even catches her name. So her name is not recorded in this history. But Jesus notices her and that's what's important because that moment will change her life. Anyway, let's get into the story. Luke chapter 8, verse 42. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. All right? They know what he's capable of. He's done all these miracles. They know he's an impressive, important figure, compassionate and powerful. They want to get close to him to find out what he has to say. Anyway, verse 30, uh, 43. There was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Luke, as I mentioned, is the doctor. He's he's got her case history, at least in the outline. Uh, She is in a terrible situation. We're not told uh, what caused her to bleed in this way for 12 years. Medical people today uh, speculate about whether it was a damaged uterus or an obstetric fistula or something like that. But it's, it's clear that nobody around could help her. She's tried all the doctors available in her day and for 12 agonizing, painful, shameful years, 
she's been unable to be healed. But Luke uh, tells us that um, this is the day that she finally meets someone who can help. She meets Jesus. Now, um, it's worth just commenting on this um, situation that she's in and the shame that she feels uh, being on the outside of society here because it wasn't just a medical problem. It was a social problem she had, a social isolation based on her suffering. In um, Leviticus chapter 15, back in the Old Testament, we, we read that there are rules for when and in what circumstances men and women can approach the temple, can approach the tabernacle. Now, ordinary and healthy facts of life are relevant for deciding the, the rhythms with which you approach God. Uh, you can't just waltz into God's presence. This was all uh, designed to teach people. You can't just waltz into God's presence. There's, there's certain rhythms of life that are mirrored in the rhythms of worship. And so men and women had particular signals in life um, that they were able to approach and that they would stay back. That was all part of the system, all well, very well and good. Uh, you had to pause, you had to reflect, you had to think, and that was the system. Now, there were, uh, as I mentioned, different rules for men and for women about when they could approach the tabernacle or the temple. And for women, the rule was that you couldn't go to the tabernacle or the temple uh, during your monthly period. Now, for most women in the ancient world, that actually wouldn't have been very often. Right? Women from a, married from a very early age were pretty much always um, pregnant or breastfeeding until they hit menopause. So it wouldn't have been a very common thing to be excluded but it was a significant time to be marked and to be respected. Also, during this time, while the woman was menstruating, if they touched any other person, then they wouldn't be able to approach the temple either. They would be considered uh, what's called ceremonially unclean, which is a way of saying they need to stay back. Now, scholars uh, suggest that this would have had a few consequences. Uh, young men would have been very careful to respect the physical space of women that they didn't know well. Uh, so as not to be accidentally excluded from the community by touching someone who was um, menstruating. What's clear is that there's nothing sinful about uh, these uh, kind of bodily functions. So for men and for women, ordinary bodily functions are mentioned as reasons why you, don't, uh, why you hold back from going to temple. Uh, you didn't have to sacrifice for sin. There was no sin involved. It's not a sinful thing. It's just a rhythm of life, one of the many rhythms of life that affects the rhythms of worship. Now that's all very well and good, but for this woman, it's not an occasional holding back from worship because she's been suffering from uh, bleeding for 12 years continuously. And so she's been unable to go to temple for 12 years. And what's worse, other people have been unable to touch her or unwilling to approach her for 12 years. Maybe some of them assumed that she'd done something wrong unfairly assumed she had done something wrong to be afflicted in this way. For 12 long years, she's been on the outside looking in. For 12 long years, she's been shunned even, an outcast in society. And so in this story, we have a, a, a woman who's not even meant to be there. If they knew who she was and they knew that she was in the crowd, they surely would have turned their backs on her and cast her away or, or maybe even worse. I wonder what it would be like to be on the outside looking in for 12 years. I, uh, earlier this year, I read a beautiful novel, um, a bit slow to the party. It's been a best-selling novel for about 
uh, two years. It's the uh, Where the Crawdads Sing by uh, Delia Owens, best-selling novel, sold millions of copies. And I can see why. It's beautifully written and awfully sad. It tells the story of a, a young girl who's only six years old when her mother leaves and um, slowly her, her brothers and, and her father leave as well until she is left this child completely alone, living in a shack in the marshland around North Carolina. She works out how to find mussels for food and she studies the, uh, the plant life and the animal life, but she is completely and totally alone, completely on the outside with only the gulls to keep her company. The people in the closest town, they know about her, but they know her not as Kaya, who she is, the intelligent and the thoughtful and the incredibly strong girl who's managed to survive in the marsh on her own. No, no, they know her just as Marsh Girl. The pastor's wife describes her to her face, seeing her in town as filthy. She is excluded and shunned because of how she looks, because of who she is, because of prejudice towards her. And she grows up understanding that that's how people sees her. That's how people see her. And she grows up tragically starting to see herself that way. She almost expects everyone to leave her in the end because that's her experience. Always an outsider, always looking in. She sees herself as unlovable in the end. I think of that story because in this, in this passage with Jesus, we have a woman for different reasons who is in a similar situation, on the outer, considered filthy. Maybe she even sees herself that way. And she is about to, after 12 years of this, she is about to encounter Jesus. Verse 44, she came up behind him, that is Jesus, and touched the fringe of his garment. She doesn't dare even get his attention. But obviously she thinks, if I can just get close to this man who's known as a healer, maybe something will happen. And it does. Immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. Physical touch is such a powerful symbol, isn't it? Uh, as we've been reading through um, the Gospel uh, of Luke, Jesus has touched all sorts of people. He's touched the man with the skin disease in Luke chapter 5. He touched the coffin of the young man in Luke chapter 7. He allowed a sinful woman, a woman with a reputation for sin, to touch him in Luke chapter 7. Later in the gospel, parents will bring children to be touched by Jesus. He'll touch the severed ear of the soldier who's arresting him to heal it after one of his overexcited disciples chops it off. And after the resurrection, he'll invite the disciples, particularly those who doubt, to touch his wounds, to see that he is no ghost. There's something very bodily and real and beautiful about this. But all the more so for this woman who's been touched by nobody in 12 years who's been experiencing no human contact. But you need to be careful who you touch, particularly in this world. Jesus has already come under significant criticism for who he's allowed to touch him. All right, the, the woman with a reputation for immorality got too close in the eyes of the, the people who were raising eyebrows. And in that culture, men and women Often, well, it wasn't such a dumb thing for men and women who weren't in, in the family to touch each other. And in this culture, she should not have even been close to these men. 
She shouldn't have been even within touching distance of Jesus because she is considered unclean. And anything, anyone she touches will become unclean in turn. And she has just touched Jesus. What's going to happen? 45, Jesus said, who was it that touched me? It's actually not clear to me. Um, Maybe we can talk about this later. Not not clear to me whether Jesus already knows who it is that touched him because Jesus is God. But also when Jesus came to earth, he voluntarily gave up some of his kind of God um, privileges, like his omniscience. Sometimes he limits himself within human limitations. So I don't know what's going on here. Is he just asking the question to give her an opportunity to talk to him? Or is he genuinely, he doesn't know who touched him. Either way, the question strikes the people around Jesus as frankly ridiculous. Right? We've just heard earlier in the passage that Jesus is surrounded by lots of people. Right? He's been, it's like a Melbourne peak hour train, you know, before when we had Melbourne peak hour trains, trams, trains, both. People are touching you all the time, whether you like it or not. If you have personal space issues, it's not a good place to be. And Jesus is in this situation where everyone's touching him. So when he stops, like, who touched me? You get the sense that they're sort of laughing at him a little bit. Right? Politely, like, well, Je- Jesus, we, um, everybody is touching you. But Jesus knows that someone in particular has just touched him. Someone touched me, he says, verse 46, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. At this point, the woman is being very quiet. She doesn't want to be noticed. She's hoping that everyone will just drop it and leave it. She's hoping nobody will expose her, draw attention to her, question what she is doing here. But Jesus is not dropping it. And so in verse 47, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, in other words, she can't just leave it, she came trembling and falling down before Jesus declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. At this point, it's remarkable. She's immediately healed. But how will Jesus respond to this woman who's snuck up on him, grabbed his cloak, touched him, though that technically should make him ceremonially unclean? How will he respond to this person on the outside? I just love verse 48. You read it with me. And he said to her, daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I was talking to Jess Fields earlier about this passage and asked her why she particularly likes this passage. And she pointed out, which I hadn't noticed before, that this is a story sandwiched in the middle of a story about a daughter, Jairus' daughter. She has a loving father who wants her healed. Here is a woman who has no, has no one, who is alone. And yet Jesus calls her daughter. It's beautiful. Do you hear the the tenderness towards this woman? As he, he reassures her, as if he knows what she's afraid of, and yet he's putting her mind at ease. Daughter, says Jesus, even though he's never met her. And notice too that it's not like his magic cloak has just made her better. It's not like a tap-and-go kind of arrangement, kind of in-out, done, transactional. No, no, it's, it's her faith that has made her well, he explains. 
this was not a mistake. Jesus wasn't tricked into healing her. This was her faith which has made her well. Others were crowding around him and nothing happened to to them. Uh, But her faith in Jesus has made a difference because it's a relational connection. She trusts him. Your faith has made you well, he says. Literally, your faith has saved you, saved you from this situation that you're in. And so it's worth us pausing on this and reflecting on faith here. Because what changes the world for this woman is ultimately her trust in a person. And not just any person. Her trust in Jesus. Her faith, uh, and this is important to us too, her faith is not blind trust, is it? She knows what Jesus is capable of. We've, We've seen that, she's seen that, that's why she comes. Faith for her doesn't mean believing things without evidence. She's seen enough to know that he is powerful and that he is kind. Faith is not some sort of superpower on her side either, though. It's not like, wow, you've got really strong faith that's, you know, that's made you better. No, no, she has just enough faith to reach out. The important thing, though, is who she has faith in. Maybe sometimes you feel like your faith is weak. I I go through times in my life where my faith feels like the tiniest little sliver. But it doesn't matter because my faith is in someone strong. It's not the strength of your faith. It's who you have faith in, his strength. And that's what heals her. To have faith in Jesus is to see me and to see him and to realize I need him. He's the only one who can save me. He's the only one who can help me. And to throw myself on his kindness and his power. Maybe your faith is weak right now. Maybe you're struggling. Can I encourage you with this observation? The important thing is not how strong her faith is. It's the strength of the one that she trusts in. So keep trusting Jesus. Because what does having faith mean for this woman? Well, having faith for this woman brings her peace. Did you notice that? What Jesus said, go in peace. This is a, this is a massive word coming from the Old Testament particularly. Peace, shalom uh, in Hebrew speaks not just to an absence of conflict, but wholeness, restoration, right relationship with God, the world the right way up, everything in its right place. And the world itself is is searching for peace. Everyone is searching for peace because we live in a world where there is not peace, at least not always. We live in a world where peace, where shalom is broken, is frustrated by sin and by sickness. But God has committed to fixing this world, to breaking in and restoring shalom, bringing us back to peace, peace with God, peace with each other, peace with the world. And while the full universe awaits shalom, God is still fixing up the universe. For this woman, Jesus offers her a glimpse into that reality, a foretaste of the peace of the kingdom of God, which is to come in the end. Another thing I love about this story is everyone's expecting, she's expecting, Jesus will be made unclean by touching her. But Jesus is so powerful it goes the other way. 
Instead of being made unclean, she is made whole. Instead of dragging Jesus down into her suffering, he lifts her up. And that's what Jesus can do for us. The effect is remarkable. Twelve years of doctors couldn't help her. A single moment with Jesus and all is well. No post-op recovery. No intensive physiotherapy required. No sacrifices in the temple as in the old system. Who is this person who has power over nature, who has power over sickness, who has power to save? It's Jesus. And did you know this very same Jesus, who is both kind and powerful, is with you right now by his Holy Spirit? For real, Jesus is with you, with us right now. This same Jesus who can save with a touch. And he has promised one day to heal every disease, to wipe every tear from our eyes. And sometimes when we ask him, when we pray, he gives us like this woman here, a taste of that future. Not always, he hasn't promised that. Life is hard and full of many sufferings, but he is listening and he is with us. The kingdom is here in part, if not in full. So I want to invite you, if you would like, to pray with someone today. If you're on the uh, Facebook or the YouTube uh, platform, there's a number that you can text, you can SMS to, to ask for prayer. If you're on our digital platform, then there's a button you can push and someone will pray with you. Would you like to ask Jesus, this same Jesus, who sees you and cares for you the way he saw and cared for this woman, would you like to ask him for help? I invite you to do that now, if you would like. We love praying with people. We love praying with people. In the meantime, Jesus invites us to join into this work. One day, all tears will be wiped away, all sickness healed. In the meantime, Jesus gives us the privilege, the privilege, the invitation, the opportunity to partake in this work as well. Now, not all of us us have uh, the gift of miraculous healing. Some do. Not all of us do. But we can all take part in this kingdom work of showing people, as if reflecting in a mirror, the reality that we hope for in Jesus. I'll tell you one story I love um, about an Australian couple. Their names were Catherine and Reg Hamlin. Now, they uh, weren't miracle workers, at least. Um, wouldn't describe themselves that way, I don't think. But while they couldn't heal women just by touching them, they were gynecologists, which is a pretty useful skill. And so they decided to leave Australia and to work just for three years in Ethiopia where access to gynecology was very limited. So they went there. Um, That was over 60 years ago because their hearts broke for the women they met. A a fellow gynecologist warned them that the fistula patients were the ones that would make their hearts break the most, and they did. These uh, were women, often girls actually, very young, who had suffered permanent internal injury through obstructed childbirth, leaving them incontinent, socially isolated, under social shame, shunned by their own families with nobody to help them. The Hamlins went for three years, but they stayed for 60. They ended up starting a hospital where women could uh, receive world-leading standards of care and love, be seen, and 
treated with dignity. When Reg died in 1993, uh, Catherine continued the work alone. They reckon 60,000 women, 60,000 women have benefited from this, have had their lives transformed as a result. And I just love this story. I love this story because it's a glimpse of the kingdom, an echo of what Jesus did for the woman in Luke chapter 8, but also a foretaste of the great healing of the world, of the great freedom which Jesus has promised when he returns. And I share that with you not just because I love the story, but also because may it be a prompt, even a challenge to you to think about where your particular gifts and skills and passions might overlap with great need and great suffering in the world. What can you do in your life with the time, the limited time we have on earth, the skills, the opportunities that you have? How can you present your life as a mirror to show people something of Jesus and his compassion and his power? Back to our story, um, not only is the woman's physical suffering alleviated, but she's also invited into a fuller reality of the kingdom in which we're no longer on the outside looking in, but we're drawn in. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. There's a lot of things that we could say um, about this. But I love the comparison with Jairus, the man who was somebody and here is the woman who is nobody because Jesus sees both of them, both the somebody and the nobody. It's not even her story, at least the heading in my Bible She's muscled in on someone else's story and yet Jesus sees her even though she is a nobody in the eyes of the world because Jesus, Jesus sees her and that's all that matters. Maybe you feel like you're on the outer looking in sometimes. Maybe you feel alone. I think we often do sometimes. Know that that's not how Jesus sees you and he welcomes you in. When we encounter Jesus, it just doesn't matter, friends, whether we are somebody or a nobody. Whether you're Jairus, important, heavy of the synagogue, or this woman, Jairus comes on his knees and begs as well. We are all on our knees begging to Jesus with no plan B, whether we are important or not. And there's a word of comfort and challenge here. Word of comfort if you feel on the outer. You might not feel naturally at home in church. You might not feel like this is your normal community. You might not feel like you're a likely kind of person to be a Christian. You don't know your Bible backwards in Hebrew, Greek and Aramaic. You don't know all the answers. You don't know the songs. You don't come from the right sort of background. That doesn't matter because Jesus is here for you and nobody can send you away if Jesus welcomes you. At the same time, there's a word of challenge to those of us who do feel comfortable, who do feel like we are somebody. Don't dare look down on someone else because they don't seem like a somebody or the right type of person. Um, I'm reminded of a story of a friend of mine. He, was, um, he actually became a Christian in a gay bar in Sydney. Long story. And he had an experience of Jesus which changed him forever. He encountered Jesus and his life was just turned upside down. But as he looked to join a church, he had so many questions He wasn't your typical church-going kind of guy at this point. He had questions like, can he marry his very handsome Italian boyfriend? 
What does it mean for him to follow Jesus and even surrender his sex life to God? And would the church welcome him as somebody more at home, perhaps at this point, in a bar on Oxford Street than in a church? And he had this conversation with his aunt, who was a godly Christian woman around this time, and she made clear that in her church they believe the Bible is true and has clear teaching on marriage. She didn't compromise on on the truth. She informed him that following Jesus, she believed, would mean saying no to some of his desires for the future, even trusting that Jesus was enough despite that. But then she said something else to my friend which just changed his life. David, if we didn't have you, she said, we would be missing an irreplaceable part of Christ's body. You are wanted. And David writes, that weekend I got a glimpse of what real acceptance looks like. My aunt, the church and my mother weren't going to change what God's word said, but they would love me, accept me and embrace me no matter what. Through their responses, I peered into Jesus' acceptance of my human struggle, maintaining both truth and grace. I didn't fully understand it at all, but I knew he was there. I sensed his unrelenting presence and I concluded that I would call this church home. I love this humble and this warm reminder that we are to embrace people, whether there is somebody, somebody we expect at church or someone on the outer, because Jesus has embraced and welcomed us. So maybe this is a challenge for us to be drawn not just to the insider but to the outsider, people who are not as comfortable in our midst because people have true, people who have truly met Jesus, people who have truly met Jesus, well, we, we can't look down on anyone because we know, we know that Jesus came to us and included us even though we didn't deserve it. So may we be a church that embraces those on the outside in truth and in love and grace. Let's pray. Almighty God, you have welcomed us in to your family, calling us sons and calling us daughters, calling us your children loved, special, important to you, important enough to stop and to save. And I thank you for that truth and I pray that it would transform the way we see ourselves and the way that we see other people as well. And I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.